0: morning we're in 1 Kings chapter 12, we'll be looking at verse 25 through the first six verses of chapter 13. God's word in 1 Kings chapter 12 beginning in verse 25 says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me, and the, man of the, and the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. Well, we ended last week looking at the nation of Israel being split into two different nations. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, now rules the southern kingdom called Judah, and Jeroboam now rules the ten northern tribes, which continue to go by the name Israel. But if you flip back to chapter 11, 31 through 33, we see the prophecy given to Jeroboam about him inheriting this kingdom. Chapter 11, beginning in, but sorry, I want to read from chapter 11, verse 38, because there he says why the kingdom was taken from Solomon. And he warns that he will be blessed too if he obeys chapter 11, verse 38. If you will listen to all that I command you, God says, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So we have this promise from God in chapter 11, verse 38, in front of us. And the question now is, well, how is Jeroboam going to rule? Is he going to be like Solomon? Who starts out great and then leads to a decline? Or is he going to be like David, who has a sure kingdom in front of him by his obedience? Well, this morning, we're going to see four things. If you have a bulletin, you'll see these in the back, on the back. First, we're going to see fear. Then, sadly, we're going to see idolatry in verses 28 through 33. Then grasping in chapter 13, 1 through 5. And the story will end with grace in chapter 13, verse 6. Uh, The first two sections will be much longer, and then kind of building the story, and then we'll see it wrapped up in those final six verses. But the story begins innocently enough. Jeroboam becomes king, and he builds these places, Shechem and Penuel, most likely defense places, something you would expect a king to do. But then verses 26 and 27 give the key to understanding the story. It says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Israel, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. Well, our omniscient narrator, i.e. God, gives us a glimpse into Jeroboam's heart and his fears. Jeroboam fears that he is going to lose his kingdom and ultimately his life. And these aren't necessarily crazy or ungrounded fears. He realizes, well, he has the tribes to the north, and what are they going to do? Well, they're going to go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship God. and when they go down there, Rehoboam will probably do like Absalom did and talk to the people and win the people's hearts, and then they'll steal the kingdom, and then they'll go back to Rehoboam and they'll kill him. Well while the first part was true, the people will probably go to Jerusalem. the rest Jeroboam should know was not going to be true because God had promised to him I will build your kingdom if you'll be faithful to me and yet Jeroboam's fears will see will lead him to turn away from God he'll see I have to grasp the kingdom for myself I can't trust God's word and yet understanding Jeroboam's inner thoughts and fears help us to understand though not excuse his actions in fact If you can understand why Jeroboam does what he does, I believe you'll be able to understand many of the things you do. Let me give an illustration to help. Our house was built in 1949. And we also live in a part of town, maybe all of town, I don't know, where the soil moves. Thus, right now in the spring, the door from our bedroom to our kitchen, it opens and closes. Rather remarkable thing for a door. But give it four or five months, and uh, it won't shut all the way now if we didn't realize the age of our house and the soil that we have every 6 months we'd go buy a new door hang a new door up and you know what happened 6 months later uh, because the problem is not the door the problem is what's supporting it and that's often what happens in our life we look at our actions the doors and we go, we got to fix that and we got And we try to replace the door, and we never dig down deep into what is it that's leading this to getting stuck? What is this that's going on under the surface, the foundation of my life that is causing this? And as long as we focus on door replacement morality, we will never fix our problems. And Jeroboam here, Jeroboam is showing us one of the foundational issues of life. And if this one is solidly fixed, then many of the doors of your life will open and shut smoothly. The issue is, what do you fear? Now notice I didn't say the issue is that he fears. Many people say that's the issue. The problem is you have fear. President FDAR, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Or you may be hearing your inner Yoda right now. Fear leads to the dark side. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. So if you want to not suffer in life, don't fear anything, except that's not true. Humans, we love to fear. People pay money to be scared, and we say we don't fear anything, but we have security codes on our phones, we have locks on our doors. We buy insurance policies, and we worry that some secrets in our life are going to eke out. And the Bible even tells us we should fear. Amos 3.8 says, When you hear a lion roar, you should be afraid. You would be a fool if you're at the zoo, and you see the lion cage, and you look, and the lion's out of the cage, and it roars, and you go, Ah, okay. If you're in your kitchen, and a grease fire starts, and your kid walks over to grab the salt right next to it, and you go, eh, he's just getting salt, you would be a fool. You should fear for them and say, stop, don't go over there, that. that's dangerous. We've got to get that out. There are times in life when we should fear. And the Bible shows us the problem is not a fear, but rather what we fear is the problem. This is played out interestingly in Exodus 20. Right after God gave the Ten Commandments, Moses is speaking to the people and he says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And so Moses commands them, don't fear, but fear. Well, what's going on? Well, what he's encouraging is the fear of the Lord. Now, when many people today hear that, they think, what in the world? And that's because we have two misconceptions. When we hear this, we either think of what we might call primitive religion, because that way when we say primitive, we can act like it's bad, where the God doesn't care about you. The God's angry, and what you need to do is bring sacrifices to appease it so you can get from their hands blessing of children and health and crops. Or they think of an explosively angry adult who may be happy now, but you know seconds later that can turn, and then you better run. Well, that is not what it means when we talk about fearing God. As well, people think, well, we want a God of love. And so many people think, so look, this idea that you should fear God, that's wrong. It's archaic. And yet the Bible frequently calls us to fear God. Well, what does it mean? Well, Ed Welch, in his excellent book, When People Are Big and God is Small, explains it this way. He says, fear, in the biblical sense, is a much broader word. It includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe being controlled or mastered by them, worshiping them, putting your trust in them, or needing them. And all those things we should do of God, not people. And that is why the Bible tells us not to fear, but to fear. We're not to fear people or things in our life, but we are to hold in awe, to hold as the thing controlling us, God. And what we fear will often control us. So we often, without thinking about it, are fearing the wrong things. And those things will control us. Because when we think this thing is the best, you know, I have to have this to have a meaningful life, then what do we do? We fear losing it. Let's take two common examples. First, our bodies, our physical appearance. God made us to delight in beauty. And we should take care of of the health of our body, and we should try to present ourselves in our best light. Yet we all know body image can become all-consuming, leading people to eating disorders, depression, and making working out the goal of life. Getting the right body can be all people care about, and they fear losing it. And yet what does Proverbs say? Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord. Shall be praised. It's, it's showing that we can fear. Oh, I might not look beautiful. Oh, people may not think I'm attractive. People may not think. Who cares? Do you fear the Lord? That should be praised. Your, your charm—it's going to go away. Your beauty—you can sustain it for a long time with surgeries, but eventually, you're going to die, and worms are going to eat your body, and it will go away. But fearing the Lord is a blessing for your life that will last forever. Or second, think about wealth or physical abilities. This is what drives numerous people. You could go back several decades and sports were a wonderful evening activity for children to do. Now, sports is an all-consuming activity that spills over into the weekends and controls many families' weekends, even on Sunday morning. Why? Because my child needs to be successful in athletic abilities. Equally pursued is possessions. We need newer. We need faster. We need better. Now, we're a society that has more comforts, larger and newer houses and possessions than any other time. But are we any more satisfied than prior generations? And yet the world tells us this is where life is. And when we think that's where life is, we fear when we don't have it. And yet again, what does God's word say? Psalm 147. God's delight is not in the strength of their horse, i.e. their time, their car, their equivalent. He doesn't care about what you drive around, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man, their physical ability. God doesn't care how many shots you can make, how far you can hit a ball. He doesn't care about your athletic prowess. But, it says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, it says, in those who hope in his steadfast love those last two phrases are comparisons those who fear god hope in his steadfast love and so the bible is showing us yes there's a sinful there's a destructive type of fear and we should try to push that out in our life and yet there is a fear of god that leads to life and we're seeing that here played out with jeroboam for while the prophet had promised if you will obey god your kingdom will be secure he fears. No, that's not true. i got to take care of this myself, and we're going to see that leads him into sin. And yet, though it wouldn't have happened because God's word would have been true, let's just imagine it could have. What if Jeroboam would have lost his life? What if the nation had returned to Rehoboam? Would that have been the worst thing? Well, Jesus declares now. He says in Matthew 10:28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That's what we normally hear, don't fear, no fear, that's what we need. But then Jesus adds, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, Jesus is saying the same thing. There's a type of fear to remove from your life, and there's a type of fear that you should add to your life. A fear that frees you, a fear that gives you life and honors God. And this dual truth is even what Jesus came to do. Hebrews two, fourteen and fifteen declares, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, being Jesus, himself likewise partake of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then hear this, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What you fear is going to be your master. It will control you. You will be a slave to it. And if you fear death, as Jeroboam does, it will lead you to do many things away from God. And that's what we see next with Jeroboam because he falls into idolatry. Verse 28, he responds to these fears by taking counsel. We don't know who with, but he then, based on this counsel, makes two golden calves. And notice what he says of these. Verse 28, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Last week I noted some ways that this story has some parallels to Israel coming out of Egypt. And if then Jeroboam was like Moses, Jeroboam is now like Aaron. And yet he tries to one-up Aaron because not just one bull, he makes two bulls. Just as we read earlier where Aaron fashioned these this golden and said, "These, O Israel, are the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt." Now, Jeroboam is very strategic. He places these in an ideal place, both geographically and historically. Geographically, he puts the first one in Bethel. That's the southern part of Israel. Haven't got to Jerusalem yet. And Bethel's also important historically because in Genesis twelve eight, Abraham built an altar in Bethel. In Genesis 28:10 through 22, it tells of Jacob when he's fleeing from Esau and in Bethel, he has a vision of God of angels coming up and down on a ladder. You can all, almost hear Jeroboam saying, "Israel, let's return to where it all started, where our forefathers worshipped in Bethel. This is the place." Well, not only does he place one in the southern part, he also places one in the northern part of Israel, another geographically wise place, at least humanly wise, in Dan. And Dan is also important strategically for historical reasons because if you read in Judges 18 through 19, a grandson of Moses began worship, though it was false, in Dan. Again, you can almost hear the words, let's return to Moses' own descendants. Let's worship the way they did. And so they are setting up these places for worship. And yet, if you flip back to chapter 11, you don't need to, but if you flip back and you read 31 through 33, you would read Ahijah telling Jeroboam, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. God had already determined where he should be worshipped, not in Dan, not in Bethel, but in Jerusalem as you read Old Testament stories you're sometimes left going what's the point well is this right is this wrong well there's no question verse 30 then this thing became a sin Now, notice it didn't say God didn't say well Jeroboam there's many ways to me I'm glad you found one that connects for you and the Israelites that's what it's important in fact, I really didn't know this until reading this week, but there are a whole group of scholars, put that in quote, who argue that Jeroboam's really just being given a bad rap because kings, it was written by Judean narrators, and they are trying to make Jeroboam look bad. I mean, Jeroboam, I mean, is he leading them from worshiping God? No, no, he's just getting a pro-Judean slant on this story. Well, the narrator very well may be Judean, I don't know. But they were inspired by God who fairly sees all. And what is claimed as innocent is in fact the very sin that Aaron committed. Earlier we read Exodus 32, and you may have noticed, after he makes the golden bull, what does Aaron tell the people of Israel? In chapter 32 he says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the... Lord. Now, if you go and look at that in Exodus 32, Lord is in all caps. All caps, Lord, in your Bible is God's divine name. You'll sometimes see God as Lord, L, and then lowercase O-R-D. That means like the authority over your life. But when you see Lord in all caps, that means like Yahweh or Jehovah, God's personal name. And Aaron was saying, we are worshiping Yahweh through this golden calf. And so Aaron and perhaps Jeroboam are not saying, oh, let's go worship God, a different God. They're trying to worship God in a new way. They're combining ideas of worship from the surrounding nations and adding to it the worship of God. And yet this is called syncretism, taking elements of various other faiths and joining them with Christianity. The problem is that God explicitly says, don't do this. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything like sorry or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God. And syncretism is alive and well today. Back in 2016, a uh, English newspaper called The Telegraph had this story. In a history stretching back 1,400 years, York Minster, a church there, has witnessed wars, plague, revolution, siege, and fires, but perhaps nothing quite like this. Arguably, England's most venerable church it is renowned around the world for its daily cycle of prayer and choral worship. But in what will be seen as a striking departure from its Christian traditions, Senior clergy at the minster have quietly introduced a new form of spiritual enrichment altogether, Zen Buddhist meditation. Now, meditation is a much-neglected spiritual discipline, and it is praised in Psalm 1. However, Christian meditation that Psalm 1 praises is when you fill your mind with God's truth, and you ruminate it, or you chew on it, and you look at it from different angles and see, How does this show me how great God is, how I should live? Eastern meditation, Zen Buddhist meditation, is the exact opposite. Rather than filling your mind, the whole point is to empty your mind. It's to get your body in certain poses or postures, and then to connect with the God consciousness, becoming one with it, which is a radically different idea than a triune God. And yet here is a church, a historic church that for 14 years has made it through wars, through plagues, through revolutions, through sieges and even fires. And yet now, its own ministers are introducing syncretism. Kevin DeYoung writes, They thought they could worship the Lord in a way that they wanted to and that God would be happy that they were worshiping him. As if he's sitting in heaven, desperate for human attention and worship, saying, Well, as long as you mean well and you're sincere about it, I don't care how you worship me. Nothing could be further from the truth. And yet, while nothing could be further from the truth, Jeroboam pushes this further than images. As one commentator aptly puts it, Jeroboam creates new places for worship, new personnel to oversee the worship, and new periods of time of window worship. So places, personnel, periods. First, The new personnel, sorry, the new place is he creates high places. We saw that specifically with Dan and Bethel. And then the new personnel, he created priests who weren't Levites to oversee this. And then the new period of time, he made a festival to be celebrated on the 8th month and the 15th day. Now the festivals that God had set up for Israel to celebrate each year, the feast, were in the 7th month. And they culminated on the 15th day. And so he's mimicking but changing the worship. He slightly twists all of this to accommodate worship that, well, notice what it says in verse 33. It says, worship that he had devised from his own heart. And that really gets to the core of worship. Will we worship God as we want him, her, it, to be, a God of our own making, or we will we worship God as he has revealed himself to be. You know, thoughts of God are constantly evolving and changing, but God's revelation of himself is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, you may be aware that there's a growing number of people in the United States who prefer to describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And perhaps you may even find such a label helpful in describing you. And for many, they like this label because when they hear religious, they think of rigid, legalistic, unloving people. And they still love God. They just don't want anything to do with people who they see as rigid, unloving, and legalistic. Well, flip over. Hold your place in 1 Kings. Flip over to Matthew chapter 15 because Jesus also interacted with this in matthew 15 he's with his disciples and the religious leaders ask him why do your disciples not wash hands like according to the ceremonial customs and then look down in chapter 15 verse 3 jesus answered them and why do you break the commandment of god for the sake of your tradition For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or his mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And thus, Jesus here is also rejecting this unloving, legalistic, religious mindset. Yet notice, Jesus does not move from that to saying, so you each need to worship God as you see fit. Notice what he says. He rebukes them, but then verse 4 he says, for God is commanded so jesus commands not traditionalism nor individualism jesus is saying what we should do with our worship is submit to what god has said thus while it's right to point out the errors of the way some people live out traditional religion even traditional christianity we must avoid the error of then swinging to the other side saying so i'm going to be the one who determines how worship Should be done. That is what Jesus avoided, and yet that's what Jeroboam and many people do today. They make up worship as they see fit in their own heart. And yet, beyond that being what Jesus rebukes, it doesn't fit reality. The way we want things to be is not always the way things are. I want to go up to the ATM and pull out a hundred thousand, it will say, insufficient funds i want my thoughts to determine where our country is headed they don't i want my children to mature without parental involvement but they won't how you want god to be like has almost no bearing actually no bearing on what god is like god is who he is and jesus has shown us the way to know god is through his word And yet Jeroboam again is showing us that there's nothing new under the sun. People want to worship God as they see fit. And yet God rejects this. And all of this because Jeroboam did not get control of the foundation of his life, his fears. He didn't trust God to keep his word. And this led him to seek control of it by his own idolatry. And this is why we have to get the foundational issues of our life straight or will constantly be in the business of moral door replacement you you can have all the ethics courses you can take you can memorize the ten commandments in english hebrew aramaic and any other language in the world and yet just knowing the commands will not cause you to want to do them we need to have a fear of the lord fear not to be clear as we said earlier not just he's gonna punish me but uh delight in the lord a love for the lord an awe and respect for the lord that's what it's talking about and if we don't then we will be giving prey over and over to various sins let's just take an easy example lying why do we lie well we lie because we think this picture i'm giving you of me is going to cause you to like me and me not getting punishment but if i tell you the truth I'm either going to get punished or you're not going to like me. So what are we doing with lying? We're fearing what those people are going to do or think of us. So to get underneath our lying, we have to say, God has justified me. God is going to take control of my life so I can be honest in any situation because God's got control of my life. And so, you know what? Maybe I'll need to be punished. Maybe they won't like me, but... I'm going to be honest because I care what God thinks. And God says, tell the truth. And yet when we don't do that, what are we doing? We're trying to grasp. We're trying to take control of our life. We're trying to secure it in our own hands. And that's what we see Jeroboam trying to do next in chapter 13, 1 through 5, grasping to secure his life. And it begins with him going to have a feast. And perhaps he's thinking he's like Solomon in chapter 8 where Solomon dedicated the temple. We're not told, but I think there's some illusions there. And an unnamed prophet comes and he speaks against the altar. And he says, oh, altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. Well, What the prophet just foretold about this king named Josiah happens 300 years later. We'll get to it. Who knows when. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 15 through 20. And you can go and read that that afternoon and see everything that was just said by the exact person comes true. In Isaiah 44 and 45, there's a similar thing where a future ruler named Cyrus is given by name. And then Cyrus later arises. So... Because of that, some scholars, put that in quote, read passages like this and say, well, this is because it was written after the fact. This is not foretelling. This is just historical rewriting. And yet that's not a judgment of history. That's a judgment of theology. In their mind, God can't foretell the future, so this couldn't have happened. Yet even in this passage, we see God foretelling the future. Immediately, because he goes on and he says, this temple, sorry, this altar is going to be torn down. The ashes are going to be poured out. Well, Jeroboam doesn't like this. So he stretches out his hand and says, seize him. And yet, before he can pull his hand back, it dries up. Jeroboam is trying to grasp the kingdom. He's trying to grasp that prophet. Yet, in his grasp, he's realizing he has no power at all instead jeroboam should trust it's not by his grasping but by god's grace that his life that his kingdom will be secure then as the prophet said verse 5 you can read the altar was torn down the ashes were poured out jeremiah jeroboam so i could not have had more clearly portrayed god's word comes true this prophet comes and speaks and that day it happens And all of this is showing the problem was not Jeroboam's fear. How does he respond to his fear? We have fears. What do you do with them? Do you cast them on the Lord? Because that's what we're going to see next. When Jeroboam responds by calling for grace, what he needs to happen happens. But what about you? Are you trying to grasp life? Are you trying to secure life in your own power? Or are you turning to God's grace to secure it for you? And we see next, that's what Jeroboam and what we need. Chapter 13, verse 6, it says, And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. Over and over again, God is showing Jeroboam he controls it all. In this case, God mercifully takes Jeroboam by the hand to instruct him. Jeroboam, if I can shrink an arm and restore an arm, don't you think I can secure your kingdom? And thus, just like Jeroboam had the prophet pray to God to restore his hand, he should ask the prophet and he should pray, God, would you secure my kingdom? Turning to God, trusting him is where Jeroboam failed. And yet this whole scene is dripping of grace. God could have just allowed Jeroboam to continue in his sin. He could have allowed him to continue in his rebellion, yet he sends a prophet to warn him. He sends a prophet to stop him. God literally stops Jeroboam's hand and tries to show him the accurate path forward that will lead to blessing and life. Then on top of all this, what does God do when Jeroboam asks for his hand to be restored? he restores it the very hand that just tried to crush god's own servant he allows to be restored and yet the wages of sin is not a shriveled hand it's death god allowed jeroboam to live now consider everything that's happened god gave jeroboam a kingdom that jeroboam did nothing to earn god even told jeroboam look Solomon is losing this because of his rebellion. And if you follow me, you will get it. And yet Jeroboam has barely begun to reign when he lets his fears turn him from receiving from God to trying to grasp for himself only what God can give. And in trying to secure it for himself, he leads himself and the nation to false worship. And yet God in his grace sends a warning. He sends healing and he shows him that he god is in control and so the gracious god is also calling us to fear him i read at the beginning of the service proverbs 3 5 through 7 trust in the lord with all your heart god has shown jeroboam is showing us you can trust my word it will come to pass and do not lean on your own understanding If you try to understand God, try to understand this world by yourself, you will always be led astray. God calls us not to lean on our understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. You Not as Jeroboam who thinks, I have to make straight my paths, I have to secure the kingdom, I have to get it by my own grasp. No, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The opposite of not being wise in your own eyes is to live in the fear of the Lord. To live with God being in the center of your existence. And this leads us to flee from evil. As you look at our nation, as we look at our own hearts, as we have lost the fear of God, we haven't lost fear. We've lost fear of the only thing that matters. And we now live in a nation of panicked people. We may laugh at times, but we panic and we buy toilet paper. We panic and we buy all the gas, even though there would have been, have been enough if everyone just acted calmly. And yet we, in giving up the fear of the Lord, have not given up fear. We fear all these lesser things that control us and run our lives. You know, there's only one way to secure your life, and that is to trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would that be us? Would you work in everyone in here a fear of you? not a terror or dread only, but also a love and delight, a reverence and awe, a trust that knows that you are good and gracious. You have better plans for our life than we can ever devise. Lord, that we would trust you, live lives that submit to you. We thank you for your son who came and died so that we may not fear death, but live in control of you by your control.